look at them tomatoes and just look at them peas. Yes, I know if Papa was here right now, he'd sure be pleased. This is hell. Live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything, but the value of nothing, this is hell. Capitalism is vengeful. It is cruel. It supports a system where the rich and powerful are always applying the wrath of vengeance against the poor. The very same poor, the wealthy insist, are the real threat to social stability. Meanwhile, capitalism imposes brutal racism and gender-based violence, which is somehow tolerated and normalized. Nearly 10% of the world, almost 700 million people, live in extreme poverty. Yet, for some reason, we've accepted that there is no alternative. Capitalism is failing to provide for almost 700 million people, and the conventional wisdom is this is the best system we can come up with ever, period, end of story. But what if that force of revenge was confronted with an avenging counterforce, one that seeks justice for those who the planet, uh, uh, seeking justice for those whose planet has been damaged to the point that it is experiencing climate change and globalization that is driving a driving force behind the pandemic? And how is the pandemic currently revealing the ways in which capitalism seeks revenge against the non-wealthy and non-powerful amongst us. We'll find out in a few when we have the return of researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Max is research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, Ontario, Canada. His books include Revenge Capitalism, the book we'll be discussing today, Uh, Art After Money, Money After Art, Crises of Imagination, Crises of Power, and the Radical Imagination. This is Max's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Max was on most recently in March of last year to talk about his then-just-posted Roar magazine article, No Return to Normal, for a post-pandemic liberation, which is a postscript to the book we'll be discussing today, Revenge Capitalism. You can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. And you can find out more about Max at MaxHaven.com. We want to thank listener Jamie Kay, who suggested we have Max back on the show. In July, Jamie wrote to us saying, you should get Max Haven on the show to talk about his recent book, Revenge Capitalism, where he argues that this economic vengeance helps us explain the culture and politics of revenge we see in society more broadly. Moving from the history of colonialism and its continuing effects today, he examines the opioid crisis in the U.S., the growth of surplus populations worldwide, and unpacks the central paradigm of unpayable debts, both as reparations owed and as a methodology of oppression. Jamie adds, I should add that uh, while Max is a family friend, he's also fecking brilliant and extremely articulate, and I think he'd make a great guest for This Is Hell. Again, thank you, Jamie, for suggesting we have Max back on the show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. 
Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, what is new by you? Uh, I just want to say special thanks to the woman in the H-Mart parking lot I locked eyes with as we were uh, both in our cars yesterday afternoon jamming food into our mouths before leaving H-Mart parking lot. It's a special moment. <laughs> you were both jamming food in your mouth at the yeah, same time? Yeah, looking at uh, caught eyes from across the parking lot as we're both shoveling food into our faces <laughs> on, the, on the way home. What was, pretty... what was the food you were shoveling? I had masubi. She had something with chopsticks, so uh, she had a higher difficulty level over there. <laughs> pretty is, impressive. That is very difficult to do. So summer ends today, and what a summer it was. It started with me getting a cold the first time I ventured into public since the pandemic began. And it ended with me finally overcoming that cold, only to immediately get another cold when I officiated a wedding. In other words, it was three months of sheer misery, which was interrupted every so often by brief periods of something that reminded me of what I think used to be summertime joy. I'm not too sure. But more importantly than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Thanks to each and every one of you who has purchased the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, the tote bag, the T-shirt, our flash drive of uh, history on This Is Hell of the 21st century so far, our coffee mug, ceramic, or not ceramic, but our uh, stainless steel coffee mug for camping. You can find all that stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And remember, if you are a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell, you get a $5 discount on all of our merchandise. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Tweet it to us at thisishellradio. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner following the return of Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. This week, Jeff must look back on a piece of theater he never saw. Richard will have, or Richard, sorry. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Max Haven on revenge capitalism. So today is the last day of summer. Tomorrow, fall begins. The most recent appearance on the show by Max Haven was in spring of 2020. Spring 2020 had just begun, and the week that Max was on, we were told by the governor of Illinois and the mayor of Chicago to stay at home, to not go to work or anywhere unless it was absolutely necessary. The last time Max was on back in March of 2020, we were in self-quarantine or as some would call it lockdown, although the only locking down that was being done was by us. So didn't really get that part. There were fears of virus passports, which would only allow one selected representative of a household to venture outdoors for provisions. Some were predicting that as many as 70,000 might die in the United States alone from the virus. The predicted surge of infections led to makeshift hospitals being temporarily constructed in any large public space public health providers could find. The National Guard was being called in to help care for the infected as there was no cure in sight. Dr. Fauci was consoling whoever would listen that a vaccine could be anywhere from as short as a year to as much as a year and a half, 18 months away. And I started looking at the calendar to prepare myself for a long time indoors, socializing with only the one person and two cats I live with 
until today. I told my girlfriend 18 months ago this week that it would be at least 18 months until we no longer have to go through all the pandemic protocols of washing our hands every time we return from the outdoors, having clothes for outside and a different set for inside your home, not only being masked and socially distancing, but wearing gloves too. For me, it was a time of putting baby powder on my hands in order to get the gloves on. 18 months ago this week, we went into lockdown here in Illinois, and I'll have a few more thoughts to share on the topic following our conversation with Max. Coming up, capitalism is cruel and its perpetrators should be held accountable. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Leave your answer to this week's question from hell again at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us or email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of tomorrow's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Capitalism doesn't reflect some inherent desire to seek revenge. Capitalism isn't motivated by our desire for vengeance. Capitalism causes us to be vengeful toward one another as we view each other as nothing but competition for what scraps capitalism has left behind for us to fight over. Capitalism pits us at each other's throats, leading to a tolerance for cruelties that are now normalized. Here to help us have a better understanding of the brutality of the market and what needs to be done about it, researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven is author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. Always a pleasure. It's great to have you on the show, sir. Uh, this is Max's fourth appearance on the show. You can find all of our conversations with Max by going to thisishell.com and searching on his last name, Haven, H-A-I-V-E-N. Real quick, Max is author of three other books, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization, which we discussed with Max on the show back in September of 2018. He's also author of Crises of Imagination, Crises of Power, Capitalism, Creativity in the Commons, and The Radical Imagination. Imagination, social movement research in the age of austerity. Follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven, H-A-I-V-E-N, and find out more about Max at his website, MaxHaven.com. You write that when you live in someone else's utopia, all you have is revenge. We live in capitalism's utopia, a world almost completely reconfigured to suit the needs of accumulation, and the world's a light, and ours is an age of vengeance. It is vengeance, sadly, that is usually directed at those who least deserve it and which leaves those whose actions led to the current state of affairs or who benefit from it free or even more empowered. So who are the ones least deserving of vengeance and how are the vengeful displaying that vengeance against them? Well, I think historically we've seen that those who are least deserving of vengeance are people at the uh, who've been placed at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, who've been placed at the bottom of the hierarchies of race, the hierarchies of gender that uh, keep systems of power propped up. So I think what we've seen is that as economic times have gotten more precarious and worse, um, Folks who've historically been oppressed or exploited are now targeted for new forms of vengeance uh, by the powerful. And 
those can take the kind of forms that you know we're used to they take the form of like white race riots where white people run amok and and kill people of color uh as a kind of vengeance um for, for no really no good direct reason they're blamed for the problems of society at large but it also in my work this vengeance against the oppressed and the exploited it also comes from the economic system at large so you know you can take something a look at something in the united states like uh what sometimes gets called mass incarceration or i think uh dylan Rodriguez is absolutely right to call it a form of warfare against the people where you have a disproportionate number of working class uh black people uh being incarcerated basically for no good reason, vastly uh, out of proportion to their uh, representation in society. I mean, one way of looking at that is, you know, through a lens of crime and punishment, but another way of looking at it, and this is something that Ruth Gilmore Wilson sort of points towards, is that this is a kind of form of society-wide revenge. Um, it serves very specific political economic purposes, but it also serves political purposes as well to distract us from the thing that's keeping the vast majority of working uh, people down, which is the system of racial capitalism. So let's talk about that revenge for a moment, that that specific revenge. You write, 10 years after the global financial meltdown of 2008, the world is haunted by revanchist politics, far-right reactionary and neo-fascist formations that seem to be based not on any glorious vision of a better future, but on taking revenge for what they think of as a stolen past. What is the past they believe was stolen from them? And did that past ever really exist? Do they want a nostalgic myth that never happened to come to life? Or do they embrace the cruelty of a past that was far more racist and sexist than the racist and sexist society we have today? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a weird combination of both in a way. I mean, there is a certain way that in right-wing sort of revenge culture and revenge politics, there is this sense that that something has been stolen from from white people, from uh, you know, and not just from white people as well. I mean, there's a certain kind of subject who's framed around the um, sort of the competitive risk taker, the independent, uh, proper citizen. There's a part of the far right myth making is that this subject. Um, that they want people to identify with has been too kind and too generous and has been taken advantage of. And so the argument either implicitly or often very explicitly, for instance, in the slogan, make America great again, is that we need to go back to this moment. And to a certain extent, they are remembering that moment with elements of truth. There's elements of the real history there, but by and large, it's also a massive fabrication. Um, and it's a fabrication that sort of has to exist in order to justify actions in the present. Because if you can believe that, you know, back before, you know, um, you know, the, this sort of liberal turn in society, back before human rights, back before, you know, all of these uh, racialized groups got uh, sort of uppity or whatever, that things were better, you can justify all sorts of incredibly draconian and vengeful policies um, that allegedly try and move society back to those times. But of course, those times were largely a myth. Um, really, the, the past is fabricated in order to justify the vengeful policies in the present. You argue that vengefulness can be observed in some form across the sorry ruins of the political spectrum, a certain cynical, nihilistic vindictiveness that emerges part and parcel of an equally cynical, nihilistic, and vindictive form of capitalism. 
Now, this is readily visible to those on the left when viewing the right, but how might the right see the same vengefulness on the left? Well, I think there's been a long history throughout capitalist colonial modernity of those with power and authority suggesting that those whom they oppress and exploit are secretly plotting revenge. And this uh, myth that the oppressed and exploited are secretly plotting revenge uh, allows a kind of preemptive or sort of Uh, yeah, preemptive kind of revenge from the powerful. So in order to make sure that the oppressed don't take revenge, which is fantasized about by those in power, those in power ultimately take revenge. Of course, they don't call it revenge. They call it justice. They call it necessity. They call it the, the way the economy works. They have a million different euphemisms for their revenge. But all but often it's based on this fear that the revenge of the oppressed is coming. Now, I think that said, nowadays, there's a number of very interesting ways this is occurring, and it's not just occurring at the level of social elites anymore. So I think you have something like the mythology, um, the kind of white supremacist mythology around the so-called great replacement. And this is, you know, in has a number of different formations, but it basically uh, begins with the idea that white people are slowly going to be replaced uh through a kind of conspiracy of vengeful others, racialized others, notably in the great replacement theories by sort of Muslims or people from Asia, and that they're being aided and abetted by either soft-hearted or actively uh, nefarious liberals who are you know, easing immigration restrictions, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is, this is a kind of classic Uh, revenge fantasy of the dominant group, where they feel like uh, the group that they've dominated for a long time, even if they can't admit to that domination, is coming for a kind of revenge. Um, And I think we see that quite often across, um, you know, across many different countries around the world with many different subordinated populations and dominant populations. Um, So in some way, that fear of revenge of the other as a huge motivating factor in sort of justifying the perpetuation of power relations. You write by revenge, I mean, not only a passing sentiment, but a logic of retribution, what Francis Bacon called a wild justice, a ruptural claiming of unpayable debts. And we'll talk about unpayable debts in a moment, but under what you call revenge capitalism, have justice and law become decoupled with the law now legitimizing and enforcing an unjust system? I mean, I would argue that that is that actually predates capitalism. I mean, you can go back to the ancient Greeks and they're talking about the fact that the laws that are passed usually by the powerful don't actually produce justice. And I mean, that's that's and I think, uh, you know, even there's a lot of discourses in many civilizations about that distance between those two terms. I think what's interesting about the moment we're in in capitalism is, first of all, in its earlier modalities of sort of colonialism and, you know, industrial capitalism, um, the law was used as a weapon, as a vengeful weapon against workers and colonized people. And in fact, that's kind of the, in some ways, the origins of modern law. I mean, we're told that at one point the law was good and the good king ruled and, you know, laws and justice were the same. But I think that's always been in some ways a myth. Um, What's happened, I think, since and what's happened in the last um, sort of 40 years, especially of neoliberal capitalism, uh, when there's been this sort of free market orientation, is that 
many more laws have been orchestrated around the figure of the sort of competitive individual. And, you know, there's been a vast expansion of market rights at the expense of sort of human rights in many ways. And many human rights are reduced to a notion of owning property. So, you know, your right to life and liberty uh, and the pursuit of happiness is considered to be a property right rather than a kind of social right. And this has been very explicitly orchestrated in the last, you know, really since the end of the Second World War by the Ameri- this sort of architect of the American empire, as Greg Grandin has shown, uh, and by others around the world who wanted to prevent uh, social movements from demanding kind of social rights, like the right to housing, the right to health care, the right to a certain modicum of uh, livelihood in society. And as a result, uh, with that, combined with the way that the whole architecture of laws now basically just supports the most rapacious capitalist uh, interests, armed with legions of lawyers by their side, is that actually I think the law in many cases begins to act vengefully um, so, you know, the, the example I gave earlier of mass incarceration uh, and its racialized dimension, that's a great example. Like, no, there, there are some cases where judges are literally breaking the law to throw people in jail. But for the most part, that system ticks along and incarcerates millions of un- people unnecessarily through just the law unfolding and rolling, sort of rolling itself along. And in that sense, even though no one necessarily intends for there to be a kind of vengeance, even though no one is sort of cackling in their office with a white cat, you know, and saying, aha, I'm going to throw all of these people in jail, even though there's no sort of vengeful individual, the system can at times become vengeful and vindictive. And that's the thing I'm particularly interested in a moment of late capitalism, where the system is so thrown into extremis by its own internal contradictions and crises that it begins to spin out all of these vengeful effects into the world, these vengeful effects into the world, without any individual necessarily needing to have particularly ill will. No individual necessarily needs to think of themselves as an avowed racist in order for these things to indeed still continue to happen. So our complicity in the system is, to us, invisible? Yes. I mean, that's that's part of the problem. And we are all encouraged or compelled to participate in the system, um, whether we like it or not, um, simply because capitalism is a totality, especially after sort of the early 1990s when it became the kind of unrivaled world system. There's no outside to capitalism in a certain way. Or, you know, maybe it would be more accurate to say there are many, many outsides, but nothing is untainted by capitalism. But I think on some level, that's only part of the problem. The other problem is that capitalism, you know, what what separates capitalism from a conspiracy or what separates capitalism from other uh, economic and social systems where there is a ruling class is that in capitalism, the capitalists don't actually need to get together in a back room and make back, you know, under under the table deals and support different politicians and orchestrate the political system. Some certainly try to do that. And we've seen massive investments by certain capitalists and lobbyists in think tanks, et cetera, et cetera. I think that story is pretty well known. But the really amazing thing about capitalism is that it is capable of coordinating the activities of its ruling class, even though those ruling class people are competitive with one another. So, you know, let's take the example of climate change uh, briefly. 
there's no climate. I mean, there's there's anti uh, climate science lobbies like from Exxon and you know Shell and all of these companies that paid lobbyists to try and discredit the science. That's true, but there's no there's no climate change lobby who wants climate change to happen. Most of the people, corporate executives, don't want it to happen, and most of the investors don't want it to happen because they also are set to put a lot of value at risk if they haven't thrown all of their sort of uh, their investments at you know, trying to avoid the climate crisis or to try and profit from the climate crisis. And so what happens, though, is because all of these different capitalist actors are competing with one another, there is no real central coordination of the system. And as a result, things can emerge in a capitalist system that no single capitalist intends or no group of capitalists intends because it emerges from the contradictions of their competition with one another. And that's something very unique about capitalism and very, very dangerous about capitalism uh, because it leads to these kind of systemic effects that nobody can control and everyone feels helpless to deal with, even some of the most powerful people around the globe. We are speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven. He is author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Thanks to listener Jamie Kay for suggesting Max's return as a guest here on This Is Hell. Thanks, Jamie. This is Max's fourth appearance on This Is Hell. Max was on most recently in March of last year to talk about his then-just-posted Roar Magazine article, No Return to Normal for a Post-Pandemic Liberation, which is a postscript to Revenge Capitalism. Max is author of three other books, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization, which we discussed with Max on the show back in September of 2018. He's also author of Crises of Imagination, Crises of Power, Capitalism, Creativity, and the Commons, as well as the Radical Imagination, Social Movement Research in the Age of Austerity. Follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven and check out his website, maxhaven.com. So Max, can, can't we just simply make the consumer choices to not participate in vengeance capitalism? Can we determine how we are complicit and simply end taking those actions or making those choices that make us complicit in our own demise? Uh, No, (laughs) sadly, no. Um, You know, if there was a way to spend your way out of capitalism, we would have done it a long time ago. And people who are better organizers and smarter than we are would have done it a long time ago. Um, That's not it's that's, I think, a myth of capitalism in and of itself, that somehow there's a consumer solution to the problem. I'm not I don't want to dismiss all kinds of consumer activism. I mean, there's many important things that can be done, uh, but I think they're useful in ways that people are. often not thinking about. So, you know, like, I don't think you're really going to fundamentally transform any industry. And you're certainly not going to transform the entire system by simply making different consumer choices. But by getting together with your community or organizing in your community to have a boycott of a certain corporation or a certain group of corporations or an industry, or, you know, building a campaign to put pressure on an industry to stop using certain products, et cetera, et cetera, you begin to build a kind of solidarity within your community that can be very empowering and teach people important skills for rebellion. But ultimately, I think the what what mystifies us is the idea that, you know, as long as you have agency through how you spend your money, that is the limit of your sort of political and social power. And what we've forgotten is that the source of our political and social power is our ability to work together, to cooperate, to build a world together, rather than 
to simply buy the products of our own stolen cooperative powers. Um, and, you know, this analysis goes back to Karl Marx and the analysis of commodity fetishism and alienation. But essentially, I, I, I find much more hopeful and also much more productive in the, in the, um, the sort of uh, nearer future, the idea that we would mobilize around, okay, like we are producing this world together along with another 7 billion other humans, as well as non-human actors, including minerals and animals and plants. And we need to figure out a different way of working together to produce a different kind of world. It can't just be about us allowing a system, basically a suicidal, vengeful system to run the show and then basically making a couple of different choices at the supermarket. That's that's just not really going to do anything meaningful. You're right that while there are indeed many individuals and institutions that bear much of the blame, they and we all exist in a system that sustains itself and its cruelties by seeking to transform each and every one of us into a replaceable competitive agent of its reproduction. Is it possible? Can we avoid that transformation and survive? Can we exist without having, without being a replaceable competitive agent of capitalism's reproduction? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, our ancestors have done it throughout history in many different ways. I think, especially if we look at the example that's been set by many of the world's indigenous civilizations, um, they have very profound ways of creating worlds where not only every human matters, but also other actors in the world, other, you know, plants, animals, minerals, um, weather systems, you know, I think that there are many ways that humans have organized themselves throughout history that are not as um, as dismissive of the value of life as capitalism is. Um, I'm not going to suggest that any of those systems were ever perfect, and I think we need to approach all of them with a critical eye. I don't think any society is or could be perfect, and you know, the task that's before us as social beings and political beings is always to try and question whatever society we live in, no matter how how much it meets or satisfies our um, desires. But I certainly think that we should not fall prey to the idea that, um, you know, it's inevitable that every system will necessarily be vindictive, vengeful, and sacrificial. And therefore, we might as well just stick with the one we have, uh, because whatever else we could try would either be worse or the same. I think that's a very dangerous presumption, especially because at this point, it's not just about, you know, how many people are going to be enslaved or how many people are going to be sacrificed or how many people are going to be exploited. It's also about whether humans will essentially transform the ecosystem and biosphere to such an extent that we're no longer able to inhabit it. That's certainly not in the same ways that we've been inhabiting it so far. And you're right that capitalism itself is a revenge economy, as you were saying earlier, a system that appears to be taking needless, warrantless, and ultimately self-defeating, but nonetheless profitable, profitable for some, vengeance on the world. Max, how can something have both qualities of being profitable and self-defeating under capitalism? Don't profits, no matter their long-term impact, perpetuate capitalism? Is climate change, for instance, bad for the planet, but good for capitalism and capitalist profiteering? even as the world burns? Well, I think it goes back to the point I was mentioning earlier, which is that, you know, um, something can be good for an individual capitalist that's bad for capitalism in a weird way. You know, there were plenty of capitalists who sold weapons to the Russian Revolution. 
you know, which was an anti-capitalist revolution. There were plenty of capitalists who sold weapons and gave support to the Chinese revolution, which was an anti-capitalist revolution. And I'm not defending the Chinese or Russian communist systems uh, per se, but simply to say that, you know, if you're just looking at the profit motive, capitalism can literally bury itself under the profit motive by literally arming its enemies. Um, that won't interfere with the profit motive of an individual capitalist. And this goes back to this contradiction that is really at the core of how capitalism tends to move throughout its history, that on the one hand, you have a system that benefits capitalists, but it is driven by the competition between capitalists and the personal profit motivations of each individual ca capitalist actor. And capitalists have a lot of problems coordinating within themselves. They're very divided. So, you know, within an, even an industry, let's say electronics or let's say communication or telecommunication or manufacturing, you have all of these different firms, these capitalist firms, they're all driven by profit, but they're all competing with one another. And then within a national economy, let's say the United States or China, you have competition between those different sectors. So you have a competition between the manufacturing sector, which has certain demands of the government, and the tech sector, which has other demands, and the finance sector, which has other demands. So all of these sectors of capitalism are motivated by profit. They might represent, you know, they might have an industry lobby group where they all get together and they're trying to get something from the government. But all of these different capitalists in different sectors are competing with one another uh, sectorally. And then on top of that, under capitalism, you have the state and the way that different states as kind of containers of capitalist interests are competing with one another. And basically, if you zoom out and you look at capitalism as if from Mars, it's total chaos. I mean, you know, they want to present it as this perfectly well-oiled machine that allows for the, uh, you know, proper allocation of prices to commodities and coordinates a massive, uh, you know, system of human energies on planet Earth. But in actuality, it is a massive civil war within itself. And out of that civil war come these vengeful and vindictive tendencies. So in a certain way, with something like climate change is a good example. It is true that there are some capitalists and some capitalist sectors and some capitalist countries, all of which who might benefit from uh, climate change. But a lot of them won't. And they're already sounding the alarm. You know, the insurance and reinsurance industry is going to collapse. Um, any industry that right now has put a major infrastructure investment in coastal properties, ports, uh, you know, uh, other civil infrastructure that sits on water, uh, coastal on coastlines is going to be vastly endangered. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of systemic risk that these companies are dealing with, and they're trying to get. They're trying to, you know, support politicians in some ways who are at least going to try say they're going to take some sort of action. But at the same time, you have other capitalists who don't want those kind of actions to be undertaken. Um, and I think this leads to a lot of the kind of confusion that we're seeing right now where, you know, you have someone like Mark Carney, for instance, former head of the Bank of England, uh, former head of the Bank of Canada, now kind of considered to be one of the leading intellectuals of sort of global capitalism who's talking about, you know, how he's going to remake himself as this big climate champion um, because he's basically got those marching orders from certain sectors of capital. Um, but whether he can do that and whether they can overcome the kind of inertia of the chaotic system of competition, uh, I'm very skeptical. Um,
You also write that such a reckoning is justified, a reckoning against those who have profited off the exploitation of the poor as well as the damaging and destruction to the planet. Reliable estimates confirm that millions of largely innocent people will die and billions will suffer and be displaced by the effects, floods, droughts, volatility of climate change due predominantly to the carbon emissions of industrial and consumer capitalism. Even though major players in key industries and positions of power knew of these realities decades ago, they purposefully buried the information to ensure profitability and competitiveness. It is hard to think of a more monumental crime against humanity, but not a single person has been brought to justice, nor will they be under the current global order. Bloomberg reported last week House Democrats are investigating the role major oil companies and their trade groups may have played in misleading the public on the role of fossil fuels in causing global warming. Letters sent to the heads of ExxonMobil, BP, Chevron, Royal Dutch Shell, and the American Petroleum Institute, as well as the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, seek information on any role they may have played that the Democrats call a long-running industry-wide campaign of climate disinformation that's, again, according to the House Committee on Oversight and Reform. What would be the impact on capitalism overall, not just the global financial line, but the ideas of exploitation and profit, selling our time to someone who benefits from our time more than we do? What impact would such an accountability have on capitalism as we know it today? Um, you know, not to be too pessimistic, but basically none. Um, you know, okay, they'll they'll call them up in front of Congress, you know, or Senate or whatever. There's going to be an inquiry. There's going to be a big report. There's going to be a couple news stories. It's nothing we you don't we don't already really know uh, from the available evidence, and none of these people are actually going to be you know, tried, it's, there'll be an inquiry, but there's not going to be a trial. They're not going to be held personal, personally responsible. They're not going to have their assets seized. Uh, certainly the model of the corporate form that basically uh, recruited these people to work for these oil companies and then tasked them with this kind of disinformation, uh, that corporate form will not be on trial. Um, so there's not really going to be any substantial change. And meanwhile, um, you know, I probably during the course of that, um, the temperature will rise uh, on average, and that will lead to catastrophic weather events around the world. People will lose their homes. Many people will succumb to either floods or droughts or, you know, civil warfare that arises from scarcity of resources. Um, and the people who are basically the architect of it will walk free. I don't think that's that's pessimistic. I just think that that's realistic. We've never, I don't, I can't remember a major moment where a kind of corporate criminal has ever really done time, other than for stealing money from other corporate criminals. So I'm very skeptical. Um, I think it is an attempt to beguile us into thinking that the politicians care particularly about this. But I think that without some sort of massive global movement that would demand very radical change immediately, um, not much is going to change. Now, I mean, whether vengeance is a part of that, I don't know. Um, I am not in favor of capital punishment, and I'm not in favor of incarceration. I'm an abolitionist. I believe prisons need to be abolished. And that means also being abolished for corporate criminals. But the only way we're going to be able to abolish prisons for corporate criminals is by abolishing the system that allowed them to become corporate criminals in the first place, which is, you know, capitalism. 
So on some level, I think our political imaginary needs to include uh, not just taking revenge on these guys who did, you know, this terrible thing that is going to lead to the deaths of, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. We also need to take a kind of revenge on the system that empowered them to do it. And that in my book, I, I sort of try and draw a distinction between a revenge fantasy, uh, which can be useful and can be important, uh, where you want to see someone punished for the things they've done and what I call an avenging imaginary, which is where sometimes you have to put the revenge fantasy aside or at least build on a revenge fantasy to try and abolish the circumstances that led to the crime or the infraction or the harm in the first place. So do you think, I know that you do not think that those hearings are going to go anywhere and that nobody's going to be punished and nobody's going to be held accountable. But I, And I realize this, this is a hypothetical, but could capitalism survive accountability? Um, you know, let me flip that around for a moment okay. and say that capitalism is a system of accountability. And let's go back to the etymology of the word accountability. It is about an account. It's about an ledger. It's about the settling of debts. And here I would, I would call up the ghost of uh, David Graeber, the great um, radical anthropologist who really did some wonderful work. I mean, he died prematurely about a year ago, but um, did some wonderful work in showing us that the economy and justice are fundamentally connected on some level. You know, under capitalism, we tend to separate them. You know, there's matters of justice, which has to do with harms and infractions, and then there's matters of the market. But really, both are about how we as humans are going to account for ourselves to one another and how we're going to account for our power to build a world together. Um, so ultimately, on some level, I think that we could imagine a system where those who did great monumental harms were brought to account. But I think that kind of system is incompatible with one where, in, by and large, the way that we account for society, the way that we account for power and influence in our society is largely denominated in money. And I mean, that's a pretty philosophical and abstract point, but let me make it very concrete. I mean, really the reason why none of these people are going to be brought to account is that they will hire the most vicious and intelligent lawyers humanity has ever created. Some of the greatest minds of our generation will spend years indemnifying their clients from culpability for climate chaos. Um, and so if we wanted a different kind of system of accountability, I think that system would fundamentally be at odds with capitalism. Let me give you another kind of concrete uh, contradiction that maybe illuminates this point about accountability. You know, like we would like there to be a system that holds people accountable for environmental crimes, you know, that where if you destroy a whole ecosystem or you force the displacement of a whole group of people or you destroy an entire indigenous civilization because you've poisoned their river, that you would be held to account. Um, but in this system that we live under, the only system of account is accountability to shareholders. And they, really, they talk about it that way. You know, shareholder accountability is basically the fiduciary duty of a corporate executive to make as much money as they possibly can for their shareholders. You know, there have been some sort of sounds around, including like double or triple bottom lines to include social and ecological responsibility in the corporate world. I'm very skeptical towards these. 
so I think the question of accountability is interesting, but I think we need to broaden it out from just the question about, okay, are these people going to be accountable to the law? We need to ask this kind of big and deep question about like, how does a society give an account of itself to itself in terms of who's responsible for what and how we're going to produce justice. And for that to happen, I think we need to question the fundamental precepts of the economy at large. We are speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Again, thanks to listener Jamie Kay for suggesting Max return as a guest here on This Is Hell. You can follow Max on Twitter, at Max Haven. You can check out his website, maxhaven.com. You write, we have been told by no less than the greatest poets and philosophers of many civilizations that revenge only begets revenge opening a chasm to hell which rips apart people families and whole societies meanwhile quests often tragic to avenge a wrong or an injustice represent some of our oldest and most celebrated stories likewise many of the world's major religions uh, they provide wise words about the virtues of forgiveness or offer supernatural assurances that even if we cannot avenge the wrongs done to us and those we love in this material realm the scales will be balanced in god's judgment or the cosmic accounting of karma. Max, to what degree can wrongs be avenged with the virtue of forgiveness or with both forgiveness and reconciliation? I mean, I, I in this book, I really wanted to focus on revenge um, and for very specific reasons, which I'll, I'll speak about maybe in a moment, but I don't want to dismiss the power of forgiveness and I, I don't want to dismiss the power of nonviolence and the choice to uh, reconcile rather than take revenge. You know, the I, I don't tend to agree with her very much, but the great 20th century philosopher Hannah Arendt made this amazing point that really in some ways history begins with forgiveness because as long as you're just trapped in this cycle of re- vengeance, of wrong done in return for wrong, nothing ever changes. Um, so there's a lot to be said for forgiveness. Um, that said, I think we live in an era that I've called in this book reconciliophilia, which is a love of reconciliation. And here, I think we can look to the way that the figures of Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King Jr., and uh, Gandhi have been sort of mobilized to defend a system that all three of them disagreed with quite strongly, which is to say the kind of like liberal capitalist um, uh, world order that we live under. And these are, of course, all three are very inspiring and very um, charismatic figures. All three of them had quite sophisticated philosophies, which are quite admirable in and of themselves, and we have a lot to learn from. But what's happened to them in the last 20 or 30 years, especially since they're all dead now, uh, is that their images have kind of been taken and turned into a kind of like a cheap poster version uh, of themselves in order to tell us that really the most just and best thing to do, and really the only moral um, imperative we have is to forgive. And the problem is that we're often being told or asked to forgive way too soon. So, you know, like we are being asked to forgive these climate criminals who've, you know, um, destroy, you know, are threatening to destroy the biosphere through rampant uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions in the name of profit. Well, those people have not yet begged for forgiveness. They've not yet explained how they're going to mend their ways. They haven't yet relinquished their power, certainly not as a class. 
Um, so the idea that we should forgive them is is very premature. Uh, you know, I take this point also from um, Dene philosopher and political thinker Glenn Coulthard, who writes about the kind of push for indigenous people to reconcile in in the territories we currently call Canada, um, the government has kind of put into place this peace and reconciliation or truth and reconciliation commission that led to a report that led to a series of recommendations. And the imperative that the Canadian government is trying to force onto Indigenous people is now now the problems are over, it's time to reconcile, it's time to forgive, et cetera, et cetera, for this terrible past of colonialism. But of course, colonialism continues. It continues now in the resource extractive industry that is ripping up Indigenous lands to get resources to export on global markets. It continues in the second-class citizenship of Indigenous people. It continues in the elevated rates of suicide and self-harm and addiction in Indigenous communities that are created by systemic injustices. And uh, it continues in the form of intergenerational trauma. So to say that there should be now forgiveness and reconciliation, this is, this is vastly premature, and it does a work of erasing the actual systemic and structural violence that is continuing. I think a very similar thing is happening under capitalism, and our infatuation with forgiveness is very premature at this moment. I certainly personally hope for a day when all of those corporate criminals and capitalists uh, see the error in their ways and beg forgiveness from the people of the world for all that they've done. I really hope that that happens. And at that time, when we are able to abolish their forms of power and redistribute that power uh, and that value throughout the world, um, we could then talk about forgiveness. But until that time, I don't think that it makes sense. And I'm very distrustful of why we're so obsessed with it. Uh, Max's book, again, the title is Revenge Capitalism, the Ghosts of Empire, the Demons of Capital, and the Settling of Unpayable Debts. So, uh, Max, is revenge capitalism anything new? Did it start with neoliberalism, or has capitalism always been rife with revenge at any stage? Yeah, I think I think the latter. It has always been rife with revenge, and revenge indeed predates it. I mean, as I was as I was saying a little bit earlier in our conversation, you know, I think all systems of domination take revenge on the people that they're dominating, and they also almost always encourage a mythology that you know the oppressed are dreaming of revenge, and therefore they need to be uh, put down. They need, revenge needs to be taken against them before the revenge of the oppressed can rise. And I think that's carried through in capitalism. But I think capitalism is a little bit different uh, for a couple of reasons. So one reason is quite practical, which is that, you know, under capitalism, capitalism is a system that, um, that encourages a kind of entrepreneurship of oppression. Um, in the sense that, you know, if we look at the early history of capitalism and colonialism, a lot of the most vicious and despicable acts that were being undertaken by slavers, colonists, uh, plantation owners, uh, people who were abusing uh, indentured laborers, these were acts undertaken on the so-called frontiers of capitalism. You know, the actual real architects, investors, the people with money and power, they were off in you know, London or Paris or Amsterdam or uh, Berlin or Madrid living lives of luxury. They never needed to lift a whip or you know, a gun in order to perpetuate their lives. So there's a way that capitalism on its frontiers 
in its colonies has always relied on a kind of normalized vengeance where these entrepreneurial individuals who might be running a plantation or otherwise, you know, or labor gang are taking this kind of sick, twisted revenge on the people under their power. Um, and also, I think we can see when people rise up that capitalism, uh, through its vehicles of colonialism, as well as through the um, institution of the police, has rarely failed to take vengeance. So, you know, famously in 1871, when the working class of Paris rose up and took over the city, it was followed after a two-month uh, kind of experiment in radical uh uh, communist democracy was followed by the so-called week of blood where the French uh, troops on the orders of the Versailles bourgeoisie uh, mercilessly slaughtered uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of communards in the streets in a kind of revenge as a way of demonstrating to the working class, not only in France, but around the world, that there would be an incredibly high price for their rebellion. So on the one hand, I think capitalism has always relied on these forms of vengeance as part of its rule, as part of maintaining its domination. Um, at the same time, I think capitalism is quite unique because, as I've been describing in our conversation, um, it begins to take a revenge that nobody intends or nobody desires. And that revenge emerges out of its own internal contradictions um, and crises. So as I've been mentioning, you know, the, the revenge that is the system of mass incarceration, the revenge that is um, the climate crisis, the revenge that is now a tech sector, which has become incredibly adept at a kind of arms race to capture our attention in ways that are making us all into, um, you know, essentially like zombifying us, anxious, depressed wrecks, you know, uh, hooked to our Instagram feed. These are all things that no one individual intended as a vengeful action, and yet they emerge from the system itself. And it's these latter forms of capitalist revenge that are most interesting to me. Um, because I tend to be attracted to trying to understand why terrible things happen without anyone intending them for very particular uh, political reasons. Because I think one of the problems in our moment right now is that we have been so habituated by the stories we tell, the stories that Hollywood tells us, the stories that uh, capitalism tells us, that we're always looking for a villain. You know, we're always looking to come back to that Nietzschean worldview of good and evil. And that's a very dangerous and simplistic way of understanding human motivation, and especially human motivation within a system. That is to say, how humans act when they come together and create something that's bigger than themselves. And so I think trying to pay attention to how vengeance can emerge from a system rather than from the desires or the drive of particular individuals helps us understand a little bit more about how um, systems work, how the system of capitalism works, and through that maybe we can understand better how to change it. Because so long as we're only looking for a villain, we will we'll always be able to find a villain. You know, there's always going to be a villain. There's always going to be a Epstein or, you know, Bill Gates or, you know, Jeff Bezos. Sure, these guys, but you know what? The reality is that as soon as you lop off one of their heads, another one is going to arise. That's the nature of capitalism. It is constantly, it has a massive uh, and really infinite pool of hopeful people who will gladly become America's next top billionaire. Um, so somehow we need to think of a form of revenge against the system that would stop that uh, machine from, or that hydra from producing new heads.
Just a few more questions for you, Max. You write, unpayable debts are the debts that almost everyone recognizes cannot or will not be repaid, but which are still enforced in spite of the often horrific humanitarian consequences. By and large, these are what I term debts from above, which is to say debts owed by the oppressed to the powerful. But aren't all debts owed by the oppressed to the powerful? Isn't that the relationship between borrower and lender? One is oppressed by the other's power to give them access to credit and thus debt? I think on some level, yes. Um, At least within the system that we live under today, and I think under many other systems, um, debt has been used as this way of justifying power. So, you know, we like to think, oh, you go in debt, so someone has power over you. But it's better to look at it throughout any kind of human system as someone has power over you and therefore they create a kind of cosmology or myth that you're in debt to them. So I think that's true. There's two things I would say about it that I think are maybe a little bit different or or that complicated a little bit. One of them is that not all debts are necessarily bad debts. And I think this is another piece that came from David Graeber, um, you know, who's a protagonist in Occupy Wall Street and some of the things they were trying to do about debt. It's an insight that comes from Andrew Ross, uh, who is also uh, an activist with a group called Strike Debt and now with a group called Debt Collective. Uh, And the Debt Collective is general, this activist group that's seeking to create debtors unions, has a really sophisticated and beautiful analysis here um, where um, they're saying, well, you know what, like what holds human societies together is a network of obligations and debts. They're not necessarily financial debts always. Uh, and often the financial debt is a misunderstanding of the kind of debt that people have to each other. But ultimately, we come into the world in debt. No infant can take care of itself. We are indebted to those who cared for us as infants to bring us to an age where we could, in turn, give to a pack to our society and provide care and sustenance for others. So their argument is we need to not simply say we want no debts and all debts are oppressive, but to really interrogate which debts are oppressive and how they're operating and how they're normalized and justified and how they could be abolished. I think the second point I would maybe bring up here is that there's a great power uh, when the oppressed say, we owe you nothing, you us more than you could possibly imagine. Um, you know, and I think this is something that, you know, to go back to maybe the example of the um, situation of indigenous people in the territories we currently call the United States and Canada, you know, debt was used throughout the entire colonial procedure to steal land from indigenous people. Indigenous people would be charged with crimes um, for simply trying to survive. Uh, in the New England colonies or in, you know, the Canadas, um, and then they would be forced into debt, and then they would have to trade land for debt, or they would have to work in order to pay off debts. So debt, uh, as a number of scholars has shown, was sort of a key weapon of colonialism. And yet I think what's so interesting that has happened throughout history and is happening again now is that in Indigenous struggles, uh, part of the rhetoric is often like, Indigenous people are owed a massive debt. They're owed the debt of all the land that was stolen. 
Um, and that is a transformative debt. And the reason it's a transformative debt, I think, is because it doesn't just demand monetary payment. You know, there is there are calls for reparations and there are calls for reparation payments. And I think those are important struggles. But I think the most radical and promising of those struggles are ones that say the crime that was committed is so monumental that it can never be repaid. And to repay it would mean to abolish the system that caused that injustice in the first place. So if we truly want to make uh, amends for the crimes of settler colonialism, we must abolish settler colonialism. If we truly want to have reparations for slavery, then that means, yes, of course, monetary reparations, but also abolishing the systems that are the legacy of slavery, including the prison system, or including the system of uh, sort of systemic white supremacy. These are much more radical demands that come out of a sense that uh, historical debt is owed. And I don't think that's oppressive. I think that's quite liberatory. You write the notion of a world haunted by unpayable debts also helps explain the growing political cynicism and the candor about that cynicism that defines the spectrums of revenge politics today. We live in an age when the claims to fairness, opportunity, the rule of law, reason, and freedom promised by liberalism are cruel, cruel to, are cruelly belied and betrayed by the reality of a form of rapacious capitalism that has grown out of that imperialist liberalism and has advanced in its name. If capitalism is such a threat to liberalism, why does liberalism still embrace capitalism? Why does liberalism view capitalism as an ally and not an enemy if it is if capitalism is a threat to liberalism? I mean, it's a good question. And I think that there's a long tradition of liberal anti-capitalism, um, you know, in some ways, socialism also various strands of socialism emerged out of uh, a what what also is the roots of liberalism in the sense that you know there's a belief in making policy on the basis of evidence and science rather than the power of individuals there's an idea that all humans are created equal um you know and that they all deserve equal rights etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think there is elements of liberalism even to this day that are very critical of capitalism I think ultimately, however, what we've seen over the last 200 years, and especially over the last 40 years, is that liberalism has largely been co-opted by capitalism. And the problem with a lot of liberalism is that it wants to reform capitalism. It wants capitalism to be tamed, but it's very uncomfortable with any means to do that that would make the people who espouse those liberal positions uncomfortable. So sure, there's plenty of like small illiberals and big illiberals who would like to see higher corporate taxes. And that's very easy. But if we're actually going to talk about abolishing capitalism, we need to talk about, for instance, abolishing private property as we know it, but which I don't mean someone's going to come and take your dinner fork. I mean, we're, you know, uh, abolishing the idea that single individuals should own or corporations should own the productive apparatus of society, the land, the utilities, the factories, the, the major sort of um, institutions of society. And I think that makes many people who come from a liberal perspective very uncomfortable because ultimately that um, contradicts the value that they place on notions of the rule of law. 
I think a lot of that is mystification, though, because as we've seen, liberal values of the rule of law certainly did very little to prevent slavery or colonialism. They're very flexible. They're very adaptable. There's some ideals that are very worthwhile, but ultimately they need to be complemented by a kind of um, radical spirit or else they don't amount to much. Um, in fact, not only did it not amount to much, they often become justifications for complete inaction in the sense that, you know, people imagine that the system, because it is inherently fair, will ultimately take care of all sorts of injustices. So I think on some level, capitalism has really uh, captured and co-opted liberalism in almost all of its valences these days. And if we truly want, and you know, this is an argument that has been made by many people more artic with greater articulacy than me, if we truly want the things that liberalism claims to want, which is to say a system that treats everyone fairly, that provides the necessities of life, that honors human rights, that uh, allows for the full expression of the human spirit, then we need to abolish capitalism. There's no way that these things are compatible any longer. We have been speaking with researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven, author of Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable Debts. Find all of our past interviews with Max at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Haven, H-A-I-V-E-N. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Haven, and find out more about Max at his website, maxhaven.com. One last question for you, Max, and as you know, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience is going to hate your response you write that you are anti anti revenge the people who are destroying the earth in our future have names and addresses they ought to be brought to justice we know that in the current system they will not be but also that any one of them is almost instantly replaceable with so many already competing for places at the top without a revolutionary movement their power will be undiminished and capitalism will continue to wreak its vengeance yet I confess myself to be too full of the milk of human kindness to have a taste for revolutionary violence. And Max, I have the same problem. I know revolution is necessary, <laughs> that often revolutions become violent because little happens, if anything, without violence. And I have had also way too much of that milk of human kindness. If I want change, Max, do I have to accept that there will be no change without violence because the system that needs to be challenged to save ourselves and our planet is a violent system itself? I mean, I would like to hold out hope that all of those allegedly reasonable and liberal capitalists could be convinced to voluntarily uh, give up their power and wealth and join a humanity that promised abundance, freedom and joy for everyone. I think that's a very reasonable thing to propose. And if they were to do so, then I imagine a revolution could happen without any violence. So, you know, I mean, it's a bit of a cop out, but I don't think it's up to the proverbial us, those who sort of are thinking that a revolution might be necessary to promise that it won't be violent. I mean, it's it it, it depends. The violence will er erupt largely from the way in which those in power resist the movements that are to come. Um, and I think there is always the threat of revolutionary violence. And I think anyone who takes seriously the prospect of a revolution, no matter how you conceive of it, has to be aware that revolutions unleash something. They unleash, uh, you know, the pain that many people have gone through their whole life under. And um, 
that pain can often express itself as violence. And revolutions happen. Nobody gets to plan a revolution. In fact, the people who try and plan revolutions are usually the ones who are least in control of it when it happens. So, you know, I'm not in any way belittling or dismissing concerns about revolutionary violence. But I think ultimately, you know, we're quite a ways away from that. There needs to be a lot of popular mobilization before anything like that can happen, certainly in North America, but generally around the world. And I think realistically, I would like to see um, those with power voluntarily give it up and then no violence would be necessary. I'm not sure that's ever happened, but, you know, it's theoretically possible. <laughs> that is a happy note to end this revenge capitalism conversation on Max. Thank you so much for being back on our show. I really appreciate it. And you know, we're going to annoy you in the future to come back on the show. It's always a pleasure. All right. Take care, Max. Live from the planet Earth where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. That conversation with Max Haven on revenge capitalism, you know, made you understand or realize anymore that this really is hell. Please show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is... What are you stockpiling over there? What are you stockpiling over there? And how are our listeners responding so far? MLM says, freezer burritos. Damn, okay. Uh, Joe B says, beer. It's always beer. Chase C says, debt. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's a good nice. one. Uh, what are you stockpiling over there? Borky B says, uranium. <laughs> Ladio says, seeds. You want to buy some seeds? Benji says, rubber nipples. Honestly, I was just looking for an excuse. <laughs> Sam W says, drugs. And finally, Aaron D says, sourdough starter and beefaroni. Ugh, beefaroni. Oh, my God. I remember eating that out of a can. What do you object to, the beef or the roni? Oh, my God, that taste of the can. Uh, So, Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at thisishell.com? Kelly Grotke will be on to talk about her American Prospect pieces, the failure of financialized higher ed, and if we want to talk with her about a second one, are endowments damaging colleges and universities. And that thanks to Trevor Griffey, past guest Trevor Griffey, for suggesting uh, Kelly's work to us. And Jeffy? Uh, yeah, and in a moment of truth, uh, shift tab, Jeff must look back on a piece of theater he never saw. As I was saying earlier, it's been 18 months since we here in Illinois and Chicago first went into lockdown over the pandemic. At the beginning, there was talk a vaccine, a cure could be found in as little as a year. Dr. Fauci updated that assessment only a week or two into the pandemic, saying it would more likely take 12 to 18 months to not only have a vaccine, but to get it into enough arms and make a difference, even if we we're lucky, uh, no longer having to put up with all of these inconvenient pandemic safety protocols. Fully aware that the antisocial behavior caused by the virus and the steps to keep us safe would take a toll on my emotional well-being, I told myself and my girlfriend that we would need to mentally prepare ourselves for the full 18 months of staying indoors alone but together. 18 months ago, when we were talking to Max Haven about an article he had written, No Return to Normal for a Post-Pandemic Liberation, the person who the Nation magazine called the unemployed epidemiologist who predicted the pandemic, Rob Wallace, first appeared on our show to give us the bad news about the reality of the virus. Despite the Trump administration's estimates that the number dead in the U.S. would somewhere would be somewhere around 70,000 people, Rob was telling us the number dead would be closer to a half million at least and could go up to as high as one and a half million. Today, the death toll stands at 676,000 in the U.S., nearly 10 times what we were 
being told it would be back in March of 2020. Back then, I was certain there would be no professional or collegiate sports on offer to distract the public with the circus it would likely need while being locked up for the winter, a winter where we were being told the virus would be at its worst. Lo and behold, it turns out pro and college sports do not need a live in-stadium audience after all. And when some teams would allow limited numbers of fans into the stands last year, the games turned into super spreader events with spectators taking home with them not only memories of a game-winning touchdown or home run, but also bringing back with them the deadly virus, infecting their family and friends. Now, fall is returning. And so are filled stadiums with some crowds over 100,000 packed tightly to cheer on their team. Which is weird because the number of daily deaths due to the virus has been steadily increasing since July 7th, with a slight downward trend only in the last couple of days. The number of daily deaths is back to where it was in February, which is where it was back in December of last year, which is where it was in late April of 2020, when we were all freaking out about washing our hands, wearing gloves, and changing our clothes every time we went outside or returned indoors. 18 months ago, when we first went into quarantine, the reported average number of deaths each day over the previous week was 43. Meanwhile, in the past seven days, the average number of daily deaths is over 2,000. At that rate, by the end of this year, the end of 2021, the U.S. could be looking at almost 900,000 killed by the pandemic. And Rob Wallace's forecasts are becoming chillingly more accurate every day. The vaccines still have apparently not reached the continent of Africa, especially those nations south of the Sahel. Places like South Africa, which has recently discovered the new Mu variant, a variant that is apparently filled with all sorts of mutations. Whether the vaccine protects us from those mutations is currently uncertain. But judging by the size of crowds at sporting events, it appears there's a chorus of whistling by the graveyard. We appear to be acting like everything's okay when simmering under the reality is a constant fear of potential pending infection, if not death. Maybe that's the new normal we've gone, come to accept in order to put on the pretense of normalcy. Maybe our new normal is being fully aware that anyone could be infected and possibly die at any moment. That any event we attend comes with the risk of death and we gladly take that risk in order to have any distraction from the doom that constantly lurks around us. If this is the normal we accept, this does not bode well for how humanity will respond to worsening climate change. Will we do everything we can to go about our daily business as we wade knee-deep through our living rooms to answer the door because the Grubhub boat has just arrived? After 18 months in waiting and waiting and waiting to no longer have to live like we are constantly under the threat of a deadly virus. Maybe after all that new normal in the face of... Uh, maybe after all of that, the new normal in the face of crisis is pretending there is no crisis. The normalization and tolerance for living in crisis. Which makes sense. After all, this is... Hell, I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Alex for producing. Uh, thanks to researcher, organizer, and educator Max Haven for returning as a guest here on This Is Hell. Check out his new book, Revenge Capitalism, The Ghosts of Empire, The Demons of Capital, and The Settling of Unpayable. That's 
We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.